Hey there, welcome to Non-Fungible Human with Dr. Owais Durrani, where we chat with thought leaders, influencers, and newbies at the intersection of Web 3.0, the blockchain, NFTs, and life. Gabby Zodik, welcome to Non-Fungible Human. I'm super excited to be uh, chatting with you today. Gabby is the Director of Blockchain and Web3 at IBM Research, as well as the Department Group Manager of the Blockchain and AI Technologies Department at IBM Research. And I'm personally always super excited to chat with someone like you who has a really you know, high-level view of what is being developed in the space that we're speaking about, what is emerging, and how it's impacting the kind of various sectors that we all work in. As you know, I personally work in healthcare. My first question to you will be, what does your day-to-day look like in terms of your roles and responsibilities? And we'll start there. So it's almost like uh, there is a day and an afternoon night uh, job. (laughs) So I have a local team that, as the title said, is active these days primarily around various AI activities, technologies, all the way from building foundational model stack or being part of that team and a big focus around uh, how to apply AI technologies into automation space, business automation space. Uh, We can elaborate more on that. And the team working really more on uh, distributed systems, technologies. Nowadays, a lot of that is done for uh, blockchain and uh, more specifically around the central bank digital currency, use case and domain. So that's kind of my local team responsibility. And globally, I have the responsibility jointly with uh, Elie and Lucky from Zurich for the entire research activities in this space of uh, blockchain, Web3. And there as well, the focus is around digital identities, central bank digital currency as the primary use cases where we are investing all the time and building technology to enable those use cases. Thanks for sharing that. We will get into each one of those things, hopefully just a little. Each one of these episodes that I've done, we have kind of new listeners and you know even some old listeners that may need some brushing up on terminology. And there's a lot of terms that we use when we talk about these technologies that we just assume everyone knows. As, as an expert, could you define some of these basic terms? So what, one of the things that comes up to me is like tokenization. There's public and private blockchains. There's a few other terms that you may probably in your day-to-day see misused. If you could kind of give us some basic definitions of what these are. Okay. Yeah, let, let me try to make some order. So in general, blockchain from a technology point of view is sort of a combination of a lot of, of two disciplines, I would say, in computer science, two primarily one. One is around crypto, cryptographic, primitives, crypto in general, and distributed systems. These disciplines existed for tens of years. We built various systems, middleware systems. And what happened is that one smart guy put these things together and built one specific network, the Bitcoin network. And he called this technology the blockchain network. And I think the realization that we had in IBM as well as others was that this is a more general concept. The fact that we put together these two disciplines accelerates the development of distributed applications. So it's not like we didn't have systems. We did. So in the past, not in the past, even in the present, we still use, for instance, Java Enterprise Edition, J2E applications, 
So we have products such as WebSphere and so on. They are also allowing us to build distributed application, enterprise distributed applications. They run in clusters and so on and so forth. But this blockchain kind of brought us, I would say, a, a whole new way to further decentralize and build distributed application. And the, the main value, I would say, is the fact that it creates some trust among entities, different entities, different companies who want to do some business together. So today, if they want to do some or have some business process in place, there are multiple issues. Usually it's semi-automatic in the sense that there is reconciliation problems, dispute resolutions, because each and every company manages the books in their own systems. And there is some transaction that happens, some business logic, some business process among those companies. If it's two, maybe it's a little bit simpler to reconcile and uh, resolve disputes. But when you have a party of, I don't know, half a dozen companies come together who want to run a distributed business process, it becomes a challenge. Now, it's not like we didn't have academic background to build and solve such problems, yes. But if you try to solve that problem, you end up building something very similar to a blockchain system. Because that's really what blockchain system solves with a, a lot of crypto in it so that there is no repudiation, there is provenance, you know who initiated the transaction, who, who signed it. But at the same time, you have this ledger, this concept that really creates the transparency in the sense that everyone can see what transaction happened, who initiated it, and so on. Again, within limits, uh, because depending on the system, you don't necessarily want to disclose everything there. But the transparency creates the trust. There is no more disputes because this is what happened. This is what we all agreed. We run a distributed uh, algorithm, a consensus algorithm. We agreed that these were the transactions. And we roll them down, and, and the, the transparency creates this clarity and the single point of, of trust among these companies. So it's really about building trust and enabling distributed businesses to, to exist. There is a confusion oftentimes between all the crypto companies and blockchain terminology. And I, as I said earlier, they came from the, the one thing, from Bitcoin. <laughs> The technology that was strongly coupled, because it wasn't generic in that sense, with the cryptocurrency, with, with Bitcoin. And up till today, I, I assume that many people still find it hard to distinguish between the generic technology and cryptocurrencies that are based on the technology. And as an evolution of that, we have today a world with thousands of cryptocurrencies, that are running on primarily, I would say, public permissionless networks. And you ask me about the differences because that's also sometimes confusing. So one of the directions of most of the industry in the crypto space is based on public permissionless networks. What does it mean? It means that the network is running in the open. Everyone can join the network to run transactions, meaning I want to buy Bitcoin, I can run and uh, ask to, to buy Bitcoin or, or, or sell Bitcoin. I also can join the network to be one of the, in the case of Bitcoin, one of the miners, meaning that I'm one of those who approve 
and order the transactions. And in that sense, it's open. They allow everyone to join it. That's the mechanism it's built. In contrast to that, when and we, I guess, at IBM led that direction, but not only us, there are also others, we made the observation that, yes, technology is generic. It could be used also in the enterprise use cases, not for crypto. And most prob- probably those use cases, we want a private permission network. So what does it mean? It means that several banks, let's say, come together. They want now to do digital bonds. They want to do digital something, some application. They don't want an open network. They want a private network only for those half a dozen banks. Only they can run their transactions and only they or even a subset are those who actually execute the network and approve the transaction and order them and so on and so forth. The difference is is in the fact that the governments in this case is well-defined. You know exactly the entities that are doing transactions, they are identified, and you know exactly entities that are governing the network, meaning if there is some problem, suddenly there is a bug in the system, you want to patch it and create a new version of the solution. The six banks, I'm sure, have some committee, some way to agree what's the process. Will They can do that, they fix it and redeploy a new version like any other software. When you go to public permissionless networks, it's much more difficult because it's the entire world. There may, could be thousands of miners and you need to sort of get an agreement with everyone to to make those changes. And it, it happened in the past. It happened with Ethereum at the very early phases. There was a problem. Up till the, these days, there are two versions of Ethereum. Essentially, there is the classic and the one that we know that's more publicly known. So the fact that this governance is a big issue to enterprises leads to this private permission network. Okay, Tokenization, I think, was one more term that you ask about. We hear it a lot. At the end of the day, in the, the space of crypto and in the space of blockchain, we use this term to denote an abstraction of something of value, a digital asset. It can represent also a physical asset that we want to do some transaction with, we want to trade, we want to maybe... It has to have some value, of course, and ownership. And maybe when I say do transaction, I can pass on ownership. I can put it in a market place. I can sell it. I can buy it and so on and so forth. So it's a means to actually abstract something of value. It could be actual fiat currency in that case of actual money. It could be IP. It could be a patent. It could be a house. It could be a car. It could be essentially anything of value. And by the way, the concept itself is not new. In other domain, other industries, like, for instance, in the Internet of Things in, um, space, we use terms like uh, digital twin. A digital twin is an abstraction of, could be a machine, an engine, an airplane. And in that cases, we had that representation primarily to do, I would say, simulation or, or some other activities on it, but the concepts are, are, it's not that new, but that's really the the essence of tokenization, right? And in the space of, of um, crypto, it really represents the, the cryptocurrencies. 
Thanks so much for kind of giving us the basic meaning of all these terms and kind of getting us all up to speed. Sometimes it can get confusing uh, for, for a lot of people. So speaking of tokenization, I saw kind of, I was looking into some of the work you were doing and some of it was around tokenization of digital and financial assets. And you recently published a piece around central bank digital currencies. And so is that essentially virtual currency that's crypto or is that something else? Could you tell us what that is basically? Yeah, so so it's it's different than the crypto. So what happened today with sometimes it's the whole space is called DeFi, decentralized finance. It's these companies are highly unregulated, independent. They can create any cryptocurrency they want. Sometimes it's called stablecoin if it's uh, if they attach it to some value that is more stable, like certain currencies, like or it could be just one currency. Or sometimes it's it has it's not attached to anything and it's purely based on demand and supply, the value I mean. And sometimes it's related to some work that you do as a miner and you get those cryptocurrencies so it could be part of the system so there are many of those the central bank digital currency is a digital representation of existing cash that we have today most of us use less and less actual cash we all do digital payments we use our phones our watches and so on many of these transactions either happen by uh bank-to-bank transfer if depends on the application sometimes or many like apple pay google pay and so on goes through our credit cards but our experience is a digital experience one and so you can think of that the central bank digital currency would be the digital representation behind these digital transactions that happen today on these applications and because in a sense, we already replaced cash. Almost none of us use cash. But this would be the equivalent of that. So in that sense, it is a stable coin. It's backed up by the government. So it's exactly the same value as the currency in that country. So if we do one in euro, like there are, there is, was an RFI just a few months ago, and there is an intent to put uh, in place a retail digital uh, currency of to represent the euro, it will be exactly one euro. And you could buy with it in any place you can buy today with cash. And you can pay with it, you can pass it between you and me and do all the, the activities that you do. Only that it is more efficient because you don't need to print money. Printing money is expensive. And, and anyway, people don't like to use it anymore because they have these digital means, certainly in the developed countries. It's a bit more challenging in, in, in underdeveloped countries where not everyone has a smartphone. But there are solutions to, to overcome that as well. So that's really the central bank digital currency. Oftentimes there is a question, okay, so if that will happen, what's the role of the commercial banks we have today? Are we now just clients of the central bank? So I need to clarify here. There are two types of CBDC, of central bank digital currency. One is called retail. That's the one between that we, the users, use. That is the one that replaces the cash. And it's between us and, I would say, primarily the commercial banks today. And then there is wholesale. Wholesale is all the transaction and settlement that happens among the banks, between the commercial banks and the central bank. 
that is already happening a digital form. Nobody's actually moving money there. So in that case, it's really a more formal digital representation of that process. In the case of end user consumers, it's actually replacing the, the cash. So there are these two, these two kinds of CBDC that both of them are being promoted by many countries across the globe, by the central bank, by the government, putting in place the required legislation policies. And many, many uh, central banks are doing experimentations with the technology to see how, how, to, how to deploy it. Now, I, coming back to the question that oftentimes is asked, okay, so now if, we, if the central bank will put out this digital uh, currency, what is the role of the commercial bank? Why do I need it? I mean, they put out the money, I can get it directly, they do the settlement. So again, there are multiple architectures that one could deploy such a central bank digital currency. But what we see is that most, if not all of the countries would go with the current model of having a two-tier architecture where the commercial banks remain responsible. So our accounts would remain with the commercial banks. They would do all the background check, the KYC. They will do all the AML, anti-money laundering checks, and so on and so forth. So our activities, it's not like the central banks want to take out of business the commercial banks and something like that. No, it will be the one who puts in place and puts the policies in the country. It will maybe do audit when it, there is some suspicious activities and so on. It will do the settlement, of course, but will go all through the commercial banks. Okay, that makes sense. And I, I personally didn't kind of make the difference between retail and commercial. And so I guess this this question be more geared towards the retail part of CBDCs. Which countries are the furthest along in implementing this and have any implemented it where a consumer could potentially conduct a transaction in this? I think that the, the largest deployment worldwide is China. It's, an, it's, it's a centralized one with actually no privacy. They deployed and enforced a retail CBDC and they are expanding it. There are a few hundred million users already that are using it. And they've been using Alipay and WeChat as their applications, but they do a lot of these financial digital transactions for payment, for transacting, for, for so on, paying at, at merchandise and so on. And they are forcing them to move to the central bank digital currency. So I would say that China, again, <laughs> not, uh, not something that will happen in a democratic uh, country because it's a centralized solution, top down, no privacy, uh, so on. But it is a very, very big deployment. There are, I think, in Africa and Nigeria, as far as I remember, there are a few more small countries where it's actually, I would say, in production not extremely well successful and it's still in the early phases at this point but i think that the western world is still experimenting and and starting to move i would say europe is among the leading geos the well across europe it's many countries all the eu that will move to 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 central bank digital currency there, there should be an rfp and start of development or, or, or implementation next year, this year, the RFP next year, the implementation. So that, that seems to be very serious. But there are also other central banks that are very advanced, India also, and, and, and others. 
Awesome. And so with CBDC and then even broader, like when you're talking about blockchain and other technologies, regulation is a big part of it. You know, folks that kind of participate in these technologies need to know what the rules are, what the boundaries are. And it seems like the United States has very minimal regulation and very little formal kind of rules compared to the EU, compared to even other places. And so that's just my impression. A, is that correct? And then B, what would you say, for example, let's take the EU as an example, exists when it comes to laws and regulations? Do they have like national laws around blockchain in particular, around, uh, you know, CBDCs in particular, or is it still more localized kind of country by country um, when it comes to these technologies? Yeah, so I think you're correct that EU has been much more active and, and the countries there than, than the US. It's not like US has not done nothing. There were experimentations done. The US, the Fed has done some experimentation. Actually, we've met with them not long ago and uh, we had a very, very good discussion. So I know they're exploring and there was an executive, a White House, White House executive order a year ago with several meetings we also participated there and gave input and so i think they are still in the education and some experimentation phases the eu indeed is advancing maybe maybe faster both from a regulation and, and policy makers and they still need to pass on some laws in order to to deploy this but as i said there was an rfi a very big rfi with tens of questions which was like a market exploration, and they've been talking to to many many uh, technology companies. Many of the countries in the EU, primarily the big ones, are doing experimentations. But at the end, uh, they will deploy a single retail CBDC across all of the uh, European Union. So all and and also a single wholesale among the central banks and the EU central banks. So so it will be a, a single system. Now, I think in each and every country, of course, there is the local uh, policies and, of course, that can further refine. And I'm not familiar exactly on the relationship, but I'm sure the EU will come up with with some policies and some regulations. For instance, how much digital euro you can hold you as an EU citizen, okay? Things like that. But then there might be more refinement on, on that. Since it replaces cash, I mean, there is some legislation and regulation that needs to take place, but it's not like it's a whole new thing. And I think, by the way, I didn't mention that earlier because we've mentioned cryptocurrencies and the whole space of decentralized finance. One of the things that accelerated the adoption or the move to CBDC by the by the various governments is the fact that, that so many cryptocurrencies started and they were unregulated and... Since they were unregulated, there were uh, also fraud and it caused, uh, we saw people lose a lot of money, real money, not money they made in crypto because they were promised uh, stable coins or they were promised that they, I don't know, they get a certain return on their investment and it didn't happen and they lost many, many millions of dollars. So part of it is to cope with that and make this uh, whole space more regulated. And I think this will also open up the opportunity for non-bank institute to join the marketplace and offer maybe services, okay? And and it it should uh, simplify that. I think that also over time, we'll see that some of these unregulated services we see today 
will adopt the new regulation that is advancing with the CBDC and will become regulated. And I think we'll see that, that, that movement. Again, it's a delicate thing also with regulation because you don't want to also kill innovation. So there is good things that happen from the, it, it always sounds like uh, it's like the cryptocurrency world is a bad thing because of the people that lost money and so on. But there is also a lot of innovation that's happening there. So we don't want to kill that. So we need a balanced way to start to add regulation, certainly for the CBDC, but for the whole, for the bigger space, but keep and allow flexibility and openness to maintain the, the, the innovation. For instance, and there is room to do innovation. Like, for instance, just as an example, when we want to buy services abroad, these are still very costly transactions. If I want to pay for a hotel and transfer money to the hotel via to his bank account, it's, it, it can cost tens of dollars. And we know that with blockchain, and we've done multiple experiments, we can do it for, I don't know, a, fra a very small fraction of that from a cost and also time because reconciliation is very fast. So it's these innovations that need to, to happen. And we want to make sure that we remain with them and we don't, we don't lose these, these capabilities because there is also good benefits that can, can happen. Absolutely. Yeah, I was at a blockchain conference maybe a year, year and a half ago. And I remember someone was sitting on the panel and they were almost begging for, you know, some rules or some level of regulation. I was like, man, that's surprising because no one wants regulation. But the fact that one of the, it was he was a founder of a company was kind of asking for this kind of shows how much work there has to be done, especially in the United States in particular, kind of shifting to kind of blockchain on a broader level and IBM. Obviously, you all do a lot of various implementations of blockchain in various sectors. And I was kind of looking through some of that work. And one of the things that caught my caught my eye was food trust, um, which is basically a system that can, you know, track foodborne illnesses and really kind of let you know which products to take off the shelves, which restaurants they may have been distributed to, that kind of thing. How does blockchain help in that, make it quicker, more efficient, and obviously make it safer for, for the public? Right. So, yeah, for this kind of supply chain, we call them track and trace use cases. It provides really the provenance in the sense that because the blockchain is so secure and let's say you manufacture some cereals, I don't know, in a factory and you sign the transaction that now you send these packages and they came from this origin on this date, whatever metadata you, you think should be on the ledger and me now as the, I don't know, store owner or uh, me even as the consumer can see all of that data and I can trust it. Okay, it's not that, I mean, this is signed, originating, coming from um, the manufacturer. So I know exactly when it was produced, from which farm it was and everything. All the And if on the way it has multiple steps or it's been uh, moved from a... Uh, manufacturing to a reseller, maybe it was in some other place and so on. All of that history is tracked and, and stored on the blockchain, on the ledger, and, and I can see exactly that. So I think that transparency also creates the trust that, let's say, I'm, I don't know, I'm an environmental and I care about uh, ESG, and then, you know, I can get all the provenance of really how much impact, environmental impact this product had in order to reach my store. Or if I'm a vegetarian, I can get all the proofs I need that this is indeed a vegetarian dish. So blockchain provides all of that. 
But there is one but here. If there is on the on the way fraud in the sense that let's say let's take an example with medicines with drugs. So I have the same provenance with drugs, but if somebody on in one of the steps replaces the 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 package, okay, with a fake one, and still submits the transaction, signs it, and so on, I don't know that it was replaced with a with a fake one. All right, that's where only blockchain solution will fail. There is a solution to that. One technology we also developed. It's called uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, sorry, not cryptocurrency. Crypto anchor. What it means? It's uh, it comes from the fact that it's like a small anchor that you attach to the product. You can think of it like a smart RFID that has some small crypto capability to keep, let's say, a unique serial number that would prove that this is an authentic product. Okay, so when I get into my hands the medicine. I can scan that crypto. It's unbreakable, okay? And I can get and you know, validate against the manufacturer that it is indeed something he manufactured. And that crypto anchor, it's not something you can copy because it's cryptographically encrypted and and there is, and there is no way you can do that. And there are multiple technologies to develop those crypto anchors from all the way from some special stickers that can change colors with temperature to really authenticate that it's uh, the original and authentic uh, product and again this is relevant to multiple products okay it could be for medicines where the damage and again these are real problems like in africa we know there is tens of i don't know how many tens of percent of medicine that are being uh, replaced with fake ones but it could be also something you attach to more expensive products okay to make sure that it is an original dress or original t-shirt and so on so yes the combination of these two can then bring you complete guarantee that you have the authentic product and exactly what was its uh, life cycle there are also other technologies to give one more example so there are products like uh, wine olive oil and so on in that case you may not need to know exactly that this originated from a certain factory but you want to know that it is really the original olive oil and it was not mixed up with water or diluted with something else so you can scan the content with simple sense relatively simple sensor even with a smartphone and analyze the spectrum of the material and get assurance that indeed this is the olive oil you expected to have and that could be good enough so there are all these technologies that complement i would say the blockchain and can give you the guarantees absolutely now kind of moving back to the crypto anchor is that something that is currently something that's expensive to produce and implement or is it fairly uncostly like blockchain transactions are as well so there are multiple companies out there who produce these and i know there are companies who are able to produce them very cheaply so that if if you need to put it on a drug then it's really 1 2 cents or or something very very cheap um i think part of the challenge now is that there are multiple companies and multiple ways to create these crypto anchors so we actually developed a framework that can work against many of these and connect them to like a, a hub that can connect multiple of these and work with the supply chain or with a with a blockchain platform 
And I think as, as time will pass, I think maybe we'll see more of consolidation around some major players and maybe some standardization also. Makes sense. One other use case that I'd like to talk about is IBM's involvement with the Excelsior Pass, the COVID Pass in the state of New York. And I remember, you know, when people are getting vaccinated, this was like an international problem, fake vaccination cards and not knowing if someone's vaccinated or not. And um, in New York State obviously used this Excelsior Pass system that would verify it using your smartphone. And I later learned that that was a technology provided by IBM in some part. My question is, has that been used in other use cases? And, you know, in, th in that use case, I think it was a perfect example of, you know, proving that you're the person you are, that you were vaccinated and that you're entering, for example, this restaurant with other people that, you know, hopefully will minimize your chance of getting sick. And so I thought it was like a very, you know, small, perfect example use case of something where every everyday people were using a blockchain technology without really knowing it, but were benefiting from it. So I was just curious if that had been implemented to other things in healthcare or non-healthcare. Yes, yes. No, actually, we we, we had in hand uh, the technology before COVID and we applied it to COVID. The, the technology or the idea behind it is, of course, much more general. It's, in, in, in short, it's called self-sovereign identity. I mean, there are multiple identity systems, right? I mean, today, when you log into a website, it would ask you, do you want to log in with your Facebook, Google, Apple account, right? These are federated or centralized identity management systems. Of course, there is a drawback because if you use your Google account to log into a certain site, then you share that information with Google, the fact that you logged into that other site, and you may, might not want to do that all the time. The idea behind self-sovereign identity is that you, as the individual, are managing your identity. Now, identity in the very broad sense it could be your, I don't know, financial uh, status or uh, financial transactions, could be your health records, your, your driving license, uh, education credentials, health credentials, and so on and so forth. It could be anything. The idea behind uh, or the way that self-sovereign identity works is that the, there are those who create certificates on your behalf to prove that, let's say, you graduated from MIT, electrical engineering, they'll create, they, I mean, today they give you a diploma that's printed on paper and you can show it to everyone and people should believe if it is the authentic one or not. And of course, there is even their fraud. But now you get this credential, a digital uh, encrypted piece of information that you as an individual hold in your wallet, okay, along maybe with also your digital money, by the way, and when you need, you can present it, and you can present it, you can present part of the information there, depending on the situation, and they can validate, first of all, that it is authentic, that it is uh, true and correct, and they can decrypt it with your public key, and so on, but they also can go back and authentic or validate that whoever signed this credential was allowed to do so, and it is signed with a public key that's known. And if it is in the case of COVID, it was approved by the government. If it is in case of education, it's approved, it's an approved and known uh, university and so on. So there are several benefits here, I would say primarily around the fact that you manage your credentials and you manage it in a way that can preserve your privacy. 
because not only you are in charge and you hold all the credentials, let's say on your phone or in your wallet, could be on the cloud, doesn't really matter. You decide with whom you want to share those, okay, when you're asked to. And we are actually working on the technology to allow you to very precisely share only the piece of information that's needed. Like even, even the simplest things, let's say you go to a pub and somebody asks your age in order to prove that you're at the correct age, the typical thing is they ask for your driving license to show that you are above 18 in Israel, 21 in the US or whatever age. But essentially you're disclosing your age, which is not needed because all you need to prove is that you're above a certain 18 or 21, a certain age. Two, there is all the details. I don't know, depends on the driving license and country, but there is your address and, and whatever. And in fact, with crypto, with sort of with credentials, with self-sovereign identity, you can actually provide him a proof that you're above 18 without disclosing even your age. And only that's what he needs to know. Okay, so again, very similar in other domains, you know, if you need to prove your, uh, I don't know, financial capability to get a loan. Today, like in Israel, they would ask you to bring uh, a statement of your last uh, three salaries and uh, some uh, testimony, some proof from your bank and so on and so forth. Instead of creating the correct piece of information they actually need, you know, about some credit capability, okay, that we can create. And in this case, we use technologies like zero-knowledge proofs to provide those proofs without disclosing the actual information. So that's really the power of uh, self-sovereign identity. And to your question, it was a long answer, but it's certainly, it was before COVID. Healthcare is certainly a domain, but we are looking, I think, at governments. It's kind of the parallel to CBDC. Governments are looking to create digital uh, decentralized identities for the citizens. It can start from managing the driving license. That is one of the, I would say, driving use cases to digitize that. But it, it, uh, there is also interest to do that for the healthcare, also for the um, education. And, and, and I think, so I think that government will be the initial ones that need to push to drive this. And very similar, but maybe in a slower pace, it is happening. And governments are looking and experimenting with these technologies. So we'll see that happening, and then we'll see it also in the, in the I would say in the private sector or companies who would deploy these kind of uh, technologies for their employees. Awesome, yeah. When when you're talking about all of that, I thought of like here as a doctor, even if it's the same company, if you're working at a different hospital location, you have to apply for credentialing. So even if it's like two miles down, same company, you have to prove that you went to this medical school, this residency, this board exam, and, and fill out each one of those things, putting down phone numbers and contacts and whatnot. And it's like a three hour process. I'm like, man, if there was something where you could just verify that instantly, how, how nice would that be? So one day, hopefully. So yes, there are actually, it, it, it touches on two things. One is really using these digital identities. It's much simpler with all the proofs because they don't need to go back. I mean, it's a transaction. They immediately authenticate that it was produced by the correct university and so on. That's one thing. And there is a similar use case that was in COVID also, where there is a long process to approve suppliers. So in COVID, it also happened that hospitals needed to buy much more equipment, masks and whatever else. And they needed a quick and efficient process to approve new suppliers. 
and approving a supplier in these entities, certainly in healthcare, but not only in healthcare, even in IBM, even in, in any enterprise, it's a long process. It takes weeks, sometimes months. So, and one of the networks we create is called Trust Your Supplier. And what it means, the essence of that in, in a nutshell is that there are multiple companies in that network and they share a pool of suppliers. And if one supplier was already approved in the network, then there is no need for the, once it's done it once, it, it doesn't have to do it again and again for each and every company like it happens today. Okay, it shows the same credentials once, and once he does it, he is approved in the network, and all the companies can trust him, and they don't need. It's like a very simplified uh, know your supplier uh, process. Yeah. To simplify. Yes. So that's also a very successful network, and we had, I think, at COVID time, we had a special one just for uh, for the healthcare. Yeah, it seems like COVID, just like many other technologies, like telehealth, for example, it really put on steroids how the implementation of blockchain and these technologies was more use cases to actual like, hey, we really need this. We need to kind of move this forward is the impression I get. Obviously, um, you've been involved in this space for a really, really long time, continue to be involved. You saw what happened in 2020, 2021 with the hype cycle and then lots of the negative press afterwards. A lot of that press focused on things that, you know, are not serious for lack of a better term, you know, apes costing a million dollars now costing 50,000 or the SBF saga and some some other things. Having gone through that two to three year period, you know, having seen what was there before, where we're at now, where where do you see the spaces right now? Where Did we gain anything from that at all? And, or did we lose anything? Or, you know, how, what what is your view on kind of what we went through over the last few years? Yeah, no, I, I think we certainly... While painful, I think, because I, I really feel very badly for the people. I mean, sometimes people tell me, you know, Gabi, what do you care? I mean, if they put their money in that uh, risky cryptocurrency and that company fail, you know, their problem. I'm saying it's not that because all of these DeFi or most of them are seen from uh, the simple citizen who doesn't understand the technology or financial institution like any other institution. And when somebody promises them that they'll get, I don't know, 18% uh, every year for their investment, it sounds very promising. It looks like any other financial institute who gives out loans and they trust that they'll get their money and they don't understand blockchain, they don't understand uh, cryptocurrency or stablecoin or how the mechanisms work. So first of all, I feel very bad about those and I think or I fear that we, we did lose some people because of that. The good thing that happened is, as I said earlier, is one acceleration of CBDC and the fact that governments, governments understand that they need to regulate this space. And as I said, we need to make sure that we regulate it, but carefully, not to kill it, not to kill the innovation. There are good and very interesting ideas there. I think people certainly learned, again, some, not all, because it's complex, so... They learned the fact that, yes, these things can, like NFTs, there was this hype around them. Even if everything works fine, correct, so on and so forth, some people invested, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars to buy a certain NFT, which his value dropped. Because again, there was no value behind it. It was just a hype. I think there people uh, may have learned, but 
even there with the NFT, let's assume that it represents something of real value and you want to make an investment. There are also technologies that needs to evolve to provide you the correct guarantees unrelated even to regulation, just to make sure. So, you know, you've seen sometimes NFTs that are priced very high and the average user doesn't really understand. So because these are permissionless and public networks where these NFTs are traded and there is no need to provide your identity, these are pseudo-anonymous. I mean, you can open as any number of wallets you want and you can just simply, you know, transact between yourself and increase the value of the NFT. And then somebody would believe that it's worthwhile, I don't know, $50 million. In fact, nobody paid for it more than, uh, I don't know, the initial value of a few dollars maybe. So again, there is more, and these things can be fixed with some regulation, okay? Because you need to show the, the, the real value. There are other things like how to implement those NFTs. You know, sometimes people bought an NFT that was, let's say, a digital drawing, which is nice. Okay. I mean, the art, the artist paid some, uh, painted something very nice and you're willing to pay a thousand dollar, a legit, legitimate transaction. The, by the way, one of the benefits with NFTs is that if you sell that artwork, there are some contracts in which the artist may get some small portion of that additional transaction, which is nice. He gets money for, but like the way it is implemented in many cases today is that in fact, the NFT itself, like the drawing itself is not put on the ledger because it's too big and it's too costly. And it's put on some website and only the link to it is put on the ledger. If that website goes away, you're left with, with the right to have that NFT and that drawing. But where is the drawing? It's gone. So these are, again, I think here again, some regulation with some technology to, to, to provide you as the citizen enough guarantees. So I gave you multiple examples of, of there is things 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 that still needs to to evolve to to make it and to maintain it and and improve it but uh, yeah i think it's a lot of regulation that uh, will organize these things would you say yeah just last question would you say you're optimistic for the next 5 years in general about the space and how how it'll develop and how governments will act and how private corporations and everyone will kind of do their part to move it forward Absolutely, absolutely. I, from the beginning, I said that the observation was there is this generic technology that, again, we had the discipline in place, but the fact that it's like any middleware that's somewhat complex and you put good minds together and you build a platform and now it's easy to develop these applications. I think we'll see many other uses or multiple uses of the blockchain technology, certainly in private permission networks. Because, you know, it saves time and it's much easier to develop these applications. I think CBDC is very real. It's not a hype. It's something that banks are putting out there and we're engaged in multiple central banks. They are moving. It's a process. It takes, as you said, three to five years until we'll see some of those. But it's, it is certainly happening. I think we'll see some regulation also taking uh, and making a little bit more the order with all the DeFi, the, that space. And we'll see that we, hopefully we as citizens will get some innovation out of the of this space. 
cheaper uh, transaction as I gave you the cross-border payment as an example or exchanges and all of these that are more efficient and, and faster and more open also to non-banked people. I, we didn't speak about that, but not everyone is banked, not everyone has an account. And we certainly, from an inclusion point of view, we can certainly do better and easier with these technologies, as well as with, the, as I said, in Africa, for instance, or other underdeveloped countries where they don't have smartphones, we can have solutions with smart cards that they come to points of sale and they can do transactions and they can they can participate in all of these. So I think there is a lot of benefit, good things. And, and we talked also about multiple other use cases that we use blockchain. So, so absolutely. And the more we'll put in regulation and organize this, I think people will start to understand and use those that are more regulated, more organized. And I'm sure there will be always those that are unregulated and people. some people would want to take some risk and it is okay. Some people go to casino to bet, it's fine. So we don't need to limit the freedom, but we need to clarify and help people to make sure they don't don't fall in those cases uh, where they really are seeking for something more stable to invest their money in. Absolutely. Well, hey, thanks so much for spending part of your uh, day with us. I always love talking about uh, these topics, especially in the health, non-healthcare and healthcare adjacent spaces, uh, just areas that I like, love to learn about myself. So I learned a lot personally. I'm sure the listeners will learn a lot uh, as well. Excited to see what IBM does and what you do over the upcoming years. And hopefully we can have this conversation in another year or two years and kind of see how things are going. But thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. I was glad to be here. And yes, looking forward also to hear feedback maybe from the listeners. <laughs> Absolutely. You have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Non-Fungible Human. We are always open to suggestions on who we should have on next, and feedback is always welcome. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay healthy, friends, and we'll catch you in the next episode.